You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy the sermon. Now we're going to talk about Acts because, you know, for a few weeks we've been in Acts, um, the book of Acts. Okay, maybe more than a few. It depends on how you define a few, okay? Um, a few years we've been in Acts, uh, and it's great. I love it. Uh, Acts is a book in the New Testament of the Bible, and it's, it's basically a history, okay? It was written by a guy named Luke. If you're new, I'm just going to give you kind of a background of what's going on. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. Uh, he, was a, he was a companion of the Apostle Paul, if you've heard of him, and who was a guy who went around and, and really was kind of the, the first big-time missionary that the Lord worked through to build the church up, right? These, they went around, and they were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and to the gospel of salvation, and they went all over the place, and Acts sort of details that in, in great detail. It's a wonderful historical document, even outside of it being a spiritual thing. It's a great historical document. It gives you all kinds of information, times, places, what happened, this happened first, this happened next. It's written uh, in a way that we can understand it, and it has uh, multiple uses for us as a church. It tells us about what the church is supposed to look like. It tells us maybe what the church is not supposed to look like sometimes. And so we've talked about what's descriptive and what's prescriptive, right? Descriptive is simply saying, this is what happened. This thing happened but not necessarily that you should do that. Then there's things that are in here that are descriptive that are clearly also prescriptive. In other words, this is what happened and you should do likewise. You should do the same thing. This is how we should be. And so as we parse through this book, we look for those things. What's descriptive? What's prescriptive? And we found a lot of things that are prescriptive and I think it's helped to shape a lot of the way that we view church. A lot of the way that we view what the Lord is doing and how he grows his church and how he, and how he works in people's lives because we've seen how it has been since the beginning. And the book of Acts is basically continuing to this day because it's really the story of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. And so uh, as we go through this, um, uh, there's a lot that we've been through, so I'm not going to do a full um, catch up on everything. I'll tell you where we are now. We're in Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy, and Luke, the author of Acts, who is not always present in the, in the history that he's giving, but in this case, he is present, are in the city of Philippi, okay? And they've, they've been through some adventures, one of which was there was this girl that was following them around, um, and she was possessed uh, by a spirit, and she was basically yelling at them, saying, hey, these guys are are servants of the Most High God and proclaiming the way to salvation. She's basically making fun of them, causing trouble, and so on. Um, Eventually, Paul, uh, after many days of this, Paul, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, cast this spirit out of her. Um, The people who she was a slave and the people who owned her got really upset about that because their money-making was gone because this girl wasn't possessed by the spirit anymore. And so they brought them uh, to the magistrates. These guys um, had them beat down severely and thrown into prison. And we left last time. Paul and Silas are in prison. They're in basically stocks, uh, locked down, severely, severely beaten. And at about midnight, they're singing hymns to God and praying, okay? This was their reaction to this moment. We talked about how they had a contentedness that was not dependent on their circumstances. And so that's where we left, and they were singing, and the others in the prison were listening. They were listening. They were taking note of what Paul and Silas were doing. And so we're now in verse 26 of chapter 16, and we'll start there. It says this, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. So, um, pretty big event here. Now, this wasn't uncommon in this area for earthquakes to happen. It's not even necessarily uncommon now, and it certainly was not uncommon then. But there's this earthquake. It shakes things up, and their chains get loosened, and the doors come open, uh, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, what I noticed, the first thing I noticed about this, and it's a little bit of an aside, but what I noticed about this description is that it's, it's such a, a, an active and, and interesting description of what it's like when Christ gets a hold of your life. If you, if you look at it as a metaphor, it's not a metaphor, this is historical, we'll get back to that, but if you look at it as a metaphor, it so accurately describes what it was like for me when the Lord got a hold of me, right? It was, it was earth-shattering. It shook me up. The Lord took me and he shook me up. He completely uh, changed my view of reality. He showed me things about who I was. He showed me things about what my uh, destiny looked like outside of him. There was, uh, it, was, it was like it was shaken and it says, you know, the foundations of the prison were shaken. The chains were loose and they were, and they were free, right? They were, there was freedom there. And that's what it's like. That's what it's like coming to the Lord. It's like you realize finally that you've been sitting in a prison. You thought you were in control and you thought you had it all figured out and the Lord sort of twists your reality upside down and you recognize that you're in a prison. But at the same time, he offers that earth shattering earthquake that, that loosens the chains and sets you free. And it's like that for me, not just when I came to the Lord originally, but it's been like that for me over and over and over through my relationship with him as he set me free from thing after thing after thing. Because it's not like you come to know the Lord and everything becomes perfect. For those of you who are hoping that was the case, I'm sorry to tell you, actually I'm not sorry to tell you, because it's a blessing and a joy to go through as the Lord releases you more and more and more to give yourself fully to him. As, as the sin in your life and the things that you, that you struggle with and so on, as he, as he comes and shakes all those things up one at a time, it's so like this description. And so I just wanted to point that out because that's what hit me when I read that verse. Right? That was what it was like to come to know Jesus and get a life in Christ. So, um, so they, they shake him up, right? And they, uh, their chains are loose. The doors are all open. And let's look at, at what happens next. Um, before, before I read this verse, I, I also want to mention this because it's really connected to the last time we talked in Acts. Remember the contentedness that we talked about. Paul and Silas were content in chains, in pain, in all those things. And, and, and it was when they were content that the Lord actually got them their freedom, that he took them to the next thing. I, I don't know how often it is for you, but for me, oftentimes, I'm looking forward to the next thing and I'm thinking, Lord, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? If, I just, if, if this could just happen, even good things, even spiritual things, even, even seeing people come to the Lord, whatever. Lord, when is this next thing going to happen? When is this next thing going to happen? And not taking the time to sit and just be content where I am. And sometimes I think we got to be sitting content where we are before he's going to do the next thing. we got to show that we're good with him, period, that he's enough all the time before he's going to give us that next thing. Because he doesn't want us to make that next thing our savior instead of him. And so I just want to mention that Paul and Silas were content prior to this thing. They weren't saying, I'm so angry, Lord, I'm so mad, why am I here? Please get me out of here, please get me out of here. Not that there would be anything wrong with that. I'm sure in their hearts they were wanting to get out of prison. But they were content, and they showed that by their actions, and then God worked in this way. So let's look at the next verse. Is verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, awakening, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. 
Okay. The prison keeper, he's chilling, right? These guys are locked up in chains inside the inner prison. Okay, he's not worried about it. They're not getting out. People don't get out of that situation is what he's thinking. And so because of that, he's sleeping. He's sleeping, but, but here's the problem for him. See, the thing is, if somebody does escape from prison, from a Roman prison, the prison keeper is subject to whatever the penalty was that those people were going to get. And so if you lost your prisoners, and any of them were sentenced to death, and this is Rome in the first century, believed that some of these people were sentenced to death, he knows it's going to go down bad for him if they escape. But they're so locked tight that he's not worried about it. He's not worried about it. He's just sleeping. Now, I don't know how many people work as a prison guard today if that was the punishment, right? Um, that, that seems like not the job you want to have uh, as a prison guard because if things go bad, it's not good. But this earthquake happens. This guy wakes up. He sees the prison doors are open. And he realizes it's over for him, right? He assumes that everyone has left, right? The doors are open. They're free to go. There's no reason that they would stay, right? Why would he assume that they would leave? Because when you're in prison and you have a sentence and all of a sudden your chains are loose and the doors are open, you run, right? That's what people do. That's human nature. This is what he knows. And so he knows it's curtains. He's done. He doesn't want to go down like that. The Romans were not particularly compassionate when it came to executing people. And so he thought he'd just take care of that himself now rather than go through that whole thing. So he draws his sword out to kill himself. Let's see what happens next. Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Paul yells at him, Hey, nobody left. We're all here. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't kill yourself. He's probably yelling loud to, because this guy's probably about to go through with this thing, and they're all there still. Now, why, why are they all there? This is, this is interesting to me, and I, and I thought a lot, and I tried to do some research on what other people had said about why all these prisoners were there, and I didn't find much um, in, in, in the research out there. But why were they all there? I understand why Paul and Silas would be there. They're going to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and clearly there is something, as we'll see in the rest of the story, that was about to happen here. And so the Holy Spirit said, stay. And they trusted him, right? And so I see why Paul and Silas were there. But these other guys, some of whom were probably sentenced to death, their chains are loosened, right? It said that all of them, everyone's chains were loosed. Why didn't they run? The doors were open. Why didn't they run? Now, the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us why they ran. But I have an idea of why they might have. And again, this is, this, these are just my thoughts based on what I know of the word and what I know of, of the way the Holy Spirit works and so on. But here's what I think. I think these guys didn't run because what Paul and Silas had done in that prison, the Lord used that to touch the hearts of these people in this prison to such an extent that they had to hear more. They had to hear more about Jesus. They knew that they could be free from prison, but like all of us, we know that we're not free inside. We know that we're not free spiritually. Right? And so they're thinking, what, if I could be happy like these guys are, if I could be content like these guys are in chains and beaten, I'd rather have that than just to go free. Because there's probably some reason I'm here in the first place. Maybe I didn't have everything all figured out. And so I don't care what I've done or what my sentence is. I'm willing to risk it all to hear more about Jesus. I think that's what happened. Otherwise, they're gone. They're gone, right? But the Lord had used the testimony. 
and the witness of Paul and Silas in this way, which goes to what we talked about in the last one. If you can show contentment in your life, even when you're going through that which is difficult, you have no idea the power of that witness in the life of other people. No idea what it could do to make them want to come to know Jesus Christ. And so keep that in mind. Now that's what I think happened. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that Paul and Silas had shown them that that the power of the Holy Spirit was sufficient to give contentment even to two men who were serving God and as a result of serving God were beaten severely and put in prison that they could still be content in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that was something that was contagious and that these people wanted to know more about it. All right. Let's go on to the next verse and see what happens. We're in verse 29. Then he called for a light, this is the prison keeper, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. So it's dark in there, right? Or in the inner prison, it's about midnight, we know that. He's got to get a light to go in there and see these guys. He gets this light, he runs in, and he falls down trembling. Now, why is he trembling? He's probably because he was about to kill himself, and that's probably a little, it'll shake you up a little bit when you're about to stab yourself with a sword, I'm guessing. Never tried it. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing I'd be trembling a little bit. But I think he's also trembling because his world has just been shaken. His world has just been shaken in a dramatic way because the things he thought he knew about reality, about the way people acted, about all of these things have been turned upside down as he realizes that these people are still there. And so he's there and he's trembling. Um, Let's, let's look at the next verse, because that'll, that'll help us work through this part. It says, and he brought them out. He brought them out of the prison, okay? So he goes in with the light. He brings these guys out. Now they're standing here. And then he asks this question, this powerful question. He says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The trembling man whose world has been turned upside down, the earthquake shook more than the ground. It shook this guy to his core. And now he's asking them, what must I do to be saved? He's broken. He's broken before the Lord. He realizes his need for salvation. Now, um, I realize this guy's just been near death. And that if you're that close to death, you're probably thinking some things like, what's going to happen when this sword hits its mark and I stop breathing? Those are thoughts that are probably going through his head. He probably realizes in that moment that maybe he doesn't have everything figured out. And then, and then we have the testimony of Paul and Silas. And I don't know how much he knows about Jesus at this point. But there are some indications in the text that he probably knows something. First of all, we, we have the fact that Paul and Silas are singing hymns and praying. I don't know how much of that he heard. Maybe they had been um, witnessing the gospel to the other prisoners there. Maybe he heard some of that. Uh, we don't know. Maybe he heard them preaching in Philippi at some point. Remember, they had been around. They'd been going around preaching Jesus. But... Remember that this girl who had been possessed by the Spirit had been walking around saying, she'd been saying something very specific that's related to his question. She said, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And whatever else he had heard, he probably knew why they were there. He had probably heard this story. And so he knew at some level that these guys had answers. These guys had answers. There was something so different about them, and so he asked them. He asked them. And and every person here who's a follower of Christ has a story like this. Some kind of a story, and it may, they're all different, and they take place over different amounts of time, and and they have different circumstances, but in, in, in a certain way, they're all the same, which is that for those who become Christ followers, 
right, who, who, who end up seeing the truth of Christ and become Christ followers, their world at some point has had to be shaken up. Their perception of reality and the things they believe had to be put in a different way because if they were able to stay in the way they were thinking, they never would have followed Christ. But something had to happen. Something had to change them. I have a story about how that happened to me, but I'm actually going to tell you a story about a couple of my friends uh, that I have and how it happened for them. And this is going to be different than yours, but in, in a certain way, they're all the same. And, and of course, my prayer is, is that for those of you, if you don't know Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, that he would shake you up in this way. The fact that you're here now suggests that he's drawing you to himself and that this is probably on its way for you if you have not already become a follower of Christ. But let me tell you about a couple guys. One guy's name is Charlie, good friend of mine back in Tennessee. Good looking guy, super like buff, ripped, athlete, um, just a, you know, kind of a partier, kind of, the, I mean, the guy knows everybody just friends with everybody, knew everybody in town and in almost every other town, okay? It was crazy how many people don't go to Walmart with this guy because you'll never get out, okay? Because he knows everybody and he likes to talk to everybody. And so Charlie was a super popular guy and he, and he did his thing and, and his thing was he knew everybody, did a lot of partying and drinking and smoking weed and, and kind of living that life and kind of fun all the time and, and, and you know, living sort of that life that everybody says, is the one that everybody wants. Good job, right? You know, ha, you know had a family, all, all this stuff, and, and doing his thing. And what happened was, is that Charlie got so used to this, that this is the way that he thought that everybody lived, and this is the only way that he saw life. And then he met a guy, another friend of mine named Rusty. And Rusty and Charlie would play ball together, play basketball and things like that together. Um, and then Rusty invited Charlie, not to church necessarily, but to his small group, to their life group. And Charlie starts coming to, just because he's buddies with Rusty, he starts coming. And he starts, his world starts to get a little jacked with. Because what he sees is all these people who are hanging out and having fun. And somehow they're able to do it without being high and drunk. Somehow they're able to do it without an F-bomb every other word. Um, somehow they're able to, to live in this way that's so different than everything he's used to. And yet they're more joyful, more peaceful than anybody else, than all these people that he's going around doing the things that are supposed to be the best things to do and the best way to live. He's got the best of everything, and yet these people are living this humble life, loving one another, and not having to do all those things in order to enjoy life. So Charlie's driving home from that group one day, and I don't know how, close, how far away he gets, but the Lord just brings it to his mind. Hey, Charlie, Charlie, you're going to die. Someday you're gonna die, maybe today. And I mean, Charlie just, he turned around, he went right back to the house, talked to Rusty and basically said this, what must I do to be saved? I recognize that everything I think about the world and everything I think about life is wrong, that I'm not smarter than God, that I can't do whatever I want, that this life that I'm leading is leading nowhere but to death. And I wanna know Jesus. And Charlie came to the Lord, and, and, and I see the similarities in this guy, in Charlie, and in this Philippian jailer. The, one more story, uh, my old law partner, a guy named Will Roach. He was a very smart guy. Um, also, great athlete, played Division I-A. Uh, I guess they only have Division I in basketball. They don't have 1A. That's a football thing. I don't think they have that anymore, but let's not get into that. Okay, he's a Division I basketball player. He's you know, very, very popular. Also, just one of these guys who knows everybody. Everything's going well. Gr grew up in the church. 
had a godly mother who prayed for him all the time, uh, actually felt called to be a preacher when he was young, and he even did a little bit of preaching like as a teenager uh, in these Baptist churches in East Tennessee. Uh, and he had sort of grown up that way, but it had never been apparently real in a significant way that changed his life with the kind of significance that you need as a Christ follower. And something bad happened. He had an aunt uh, who was very, very, very close to him. I mean, just imagine the people in your life that are the very closest to you. And she got cancer and she died. And when that happened, he was so broken and angry and mad at God that he left all of that. And he went down a road and just started spiraling down and down and down, chasing all the things that culture tells you are worth chasing, right? And I'm not going to go through all, all of those things because he's a judge now. Um, and I don't need this on tape. But he went through a lot of things, okay? Um, and Will, as he's going down this road, he finally comes to this conclusion. Okay, he's never been to the West Coast, but this is what he thinks. I think you might find this interesting. He says to himself, I'm just going to go to Oregon and find some commune and smoke weed until I die. This is what people on the East Coast think is going on out here, right? That we're just in a bunch of communes smoking weed until we die. Like that's, the, that's what they think. So congratulations. Uh, Northwest culture has definitely shown itself um, to be something to be admired. In any case, that's what he says to himself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out to Oregon. Of course, you wouldn't say Oregon because they're from Tennessee and they don't say it right. So I'm, we're going to go out to Oregon. And I'm, gonna, and I'm just basically going to do drugs, smoke weed, and die. Because I'm over it. There is no God right? There's no, there, none of that's true. Nothing's real. I'm angry and so on. He said, before I do that, his mom had been praying for him, and I think she had sent him a letter uh, that just talking about how she'd always pray that he would know the Lord. So before I do that, I think just out of respect to his mother, I'm going to give, I'm going to read through the Gospels one time so that I can finally be like, okay, I rejected this and I'm done. And as he goes through the stories and he's reading through the Gospels, there comes a moment where the Lord just shows him, reveals to him the truth, just reveals to him the truth, and he drops to his knees and says, Jesus is the son of God. When the Lord gets a hold of you in that way, it is earth-shattering. It's life-changing. And this guy, both of these guys, are faithful Christ followers to this day. And in both these cases, these things happened a long time ago. And they've continued to follow the Lord faithfully because he got a hold of them in this kind of a way. He shook them up. He changed their reality. He changed their life. A guy, in both cases, guys who were basically going straight to hell and wanting to go there found love and peace and joy and fulfillment in Christ because he shook their lives so much. And both of them have been a great blessing to me. And hopefully I've been a blessing to them. And I have a story that's similar to that. And I hope, I hope that you all can point to that in your life. Now, not, not for everybody is it going to be this dramatic, like, boom, right at once. There are people who it has to go, uh, there's a ways, right? There's a path and there's a process. And of course, there was a process and a path. God was working in the hearts of these men and has worked in your heart. Some people need more evidence before they can get past certain things so they can really consider Christ. Some people need to see less hypocrisy or they need to see the way the Lord works in other people. Whatever it is, you've come to the Lord somehow. He's changed your perception of reality somehow if you're a Christ follower. And if you're not, he can do that for you too. Let's see what happens with this guy. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered him very simply. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot going on in that small sentence. There's a lot going on there. They're not saying so that we're clear. Believe in Jesus. Like believe that he existed or even that he rose from the dead or whatever. They're saying believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Lord has implications that explode through that sentence. The gospel in one sentence as it is here. The word Lord means something significant. Let's, let's walk through, there's a thing called the outline of biblical usage, and this is one of the definitions they give for the word Lord. Put it up on the screen there. It says, he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has power of deciding, master, Lord. Paul and Silas are saying, you want to be saved? You've got to become Jesus's. You've got to become his. He has to have you. You have to give yourself to him. He has to be Lord. It's not, yes, I believe that Jesus was out there and thank you for the get out of hell free card. That's not what they're saying. There's nothing, there's nothing like that suggested in this sentence. They're saying, believe on the Lord, Jesus Christ. He's got to be Lord. He's got to be in charge. You've got to be willing and ready to give yourself to him because, of course, he created you and knows what you need. The relationship that's right, the one that that fits, the one that's got the beauty and the truth in it is the one where you give yourself to Christ, and that's what you have to do to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to do to be saved. It's no different now. Things have never changed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it means you believe that Jesus came to the earth, that he died, that he rose again. Yes, it, it means that you believe that he's, that he's faithful and able to forgive your sin, that, that he paid for it. Yes, it means that you believe that he loves you. Yes, it means that you love him, all of those things. Ultimately, though, all those things are wrapped up in making him Lord. And so in one very short sentence, Paul and Silas Preach the gospel in the simpleness of this. Jesus has to be Lord. Jesus has to be Lord. Let's read kind of the rest of this story here. Verses 32 through 34. It says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So the first thing he does, this guy's like, okay, tell me about that. And they're like, absolutely. That's kind of what we're out here to do. And so Paul and Silas, they they preach the gospel, they preach the word. They do what they always do. They They show that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as they do that, this man and his whole household belief. They come to believe in Christ. They, come, they become Christ followers. They make Jesus Lord, and immediately they're baptized because that's what we do, right? Our baptism, that's, that's, that's acting in obedience to what Christ has called us to do, and we're showing through that that we're his, that he's Lord. That's the thing, and so they do that. They get baptized, right? I find it really interesting that they make him preach first, and then they go clean his wounds, right? Like, he's so interested, he's so excited about being saved and knowing Jesus Christ, he doesn't want to wait a minute, even to help these guys out who are literally open wounds, gaping, probably don't have that many clothes off because they ripped their clothes off to beat them down. So these guys are just like blood and whatever. My brother gets mad at me when I don't dress nice enough when I preach, okay? These guys are preaching with like blood coming off them and everything else. At least I don't do that. Um, 
So that's where they, he waits until they've preached, and then he goes and washes their wounds, and, and they get baptized, okay? And then they eat together, and this jailer, who at the beginning of the story was so content and comfortable that he knew the way the world worked, that he had it figured out. He knew all the things to say and all those things that were true. He didn't need God. He didn't need any of that. He's sleeping like a baby. He's sleeping like a baby. And from that (laughs) to almost dead to becoming a Christ follower all happens in this very short period of time. God took somebody who didn't seem like he was looking for God and brought him to himself, and that's what he does. It's not about us. It's about God drawing you to himself. He loves you. Don't think that you're diligently seeking God, because basically not many of us really do that in a real way. Now, we seek sometimes, but oftentimes we're seeking to prove our own biases, or we're seeking to make sure that we're okay in what we're doing, whatever. I'm not saying there are no true seekers out there. I hope that there are some seekers here in this room who are seeking truth and who are truly seeking after God. That's what we're here for. But this guy wasn't. This guy was sleeping. He's chilling. And God saves him. And what's his response? He rejoiced. He rejoiced. And that's a kind of a weird word. I mean, it's not weird, but it's just not that cool of a word. Um, you know, if somebody's like, hey, man, I got a new driver's license. And you're like, oh, rejoice. You know, it's, it's just not, it's not the way we talk, right? It's not the way we talk, but man, is there some meaning behind that word? Man, is there some meaning behind the concept of joy? First of all, being filled with joy is evidence that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is in your life. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these, against such, there is no law. Those things that I just read, the joy, the love, the peace, the long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things are your birthright for those who are born new of the Spirit. They're your birthright. Living in those things, those are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit makes you alive in Christ. You get these, and this guy shows it immediately. He's rejoicing. And listen, joy is not um, happiness. It's especially not that goofy kind of happiness that can be kind of annoying. That's not joy. That's goofy happiness. And that's okay. Sometimes it's fun. There can be too much of it sometimes. If you know anybody like that, I don't know. Um, But I love joy. And I love happiness. But happiness is not joy. Joy is that deep, deep feeling. So much further down. So much deeper than happiness It's this feeling of gratitude, thankfulness, contentment that we feel and that comes from our confidence and our trust in Jesus Christ. It's the only place where joy comes from. It's the only thing in this universe that you can have that kind of confidence in. You take that step of faith in Christ. You know, we've talked about the evidence. The evidence is there. It's not that big of a step of faith in Christ. It's more about giving up you for him and letting him make you who you really are. But in that moment, what comes back is joy. Why? Because joy is that feeling 
that deep feeling that we have when we trust in the faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's the natural result of saving faith in Christ. It's believing what he's promised us in Romans 8, 28. And that says this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The feeling that comes from believing that God is in control, that he's sovereign, and that he'll do what he said he'll do. Work out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you believe that, if you believe that, that's going to give you joy. That's not just happiness. That's way more than happiness. That's a contentment that can take you through beatings and chains, that can take you through death, that can take you through the valley of the shadow of death, that will take you through all of those things, knowing and believing and trusting, hey, I know in whom I believe. I know it. I know what he said he's going to do. And he's going to make good on that. And I can rest content in that, that all things will work together for good, whether I understand them right now, whether I'm confused, whether I'm angry, whether I'm sad, whatever I'm going through, I can still have joy. I can still rejoice in the Lord and find strength in that. We're commanded, actually, to have joy. Remember, Jesus went to the cross for joy. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for joy that Jesus paid for your sins. It was for joy that he died for you. And it's joy that's the result of you accepting that, believing that, and making him Lord. We're actually commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Paul writes a letter to these people. He's in Philippi, right? He writes a letter to these people, the Holy Spirit through him. And, and it goes to, it's called Philippians. It's in the Bible. And in that letter, he, tell, he talks about joy a lot. But there's a couple of things he says, okay? In verse 4, 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's got to repeat himself. Hey, listen, this is a command. This is what you as a follower of Christ are to do. You're to rejoice. You're to have joy. It's to be in your heart. Sometimes, sometimes I fail at that. Or at least, let's say this, sometimes I fail to let others see the joy that's in my heart. Sometimes I fail to let that out. Sometimes I, I don't think about it enough or I'm not concentrating on that joy that's there. And, and when I do that, I have to wonder sometimes if people might think, maybe this thing isn't that joyful, this Christ following. But when I, when I get in that place, I remember, I go back to those moments, to that moment of Christ drawing me to himself, to that moment of freedom and recognizing that the chains were gone, that I was free in him. And the joy comes back and it comes back fast. Nothing gets me more joyful than a couple of things. Remembering what Christ has done for me, obviously my children, my wife, my family, and you. Seeing what God is doing in you gives me joy like you can't believe. When I sit and talk to you, whether it's outside here, whether it's at Life Group or Contemplate or whatever, and I see the Lord working and growing in you, the joy that I have for you is so incredible. And you should have that for each other. 
You should have that for each other. That's a feeling that take, can take you through anything. No matter what I face, I can go back and I can draw from the well of joy that the Holy Spirit has built in my heart through these things. And we are called to do that too. So today and every single day, let's remember the promises of God. Let's trust and believe in them. Let's not have a lack of faith because a lack of faith will cause a lack of joy. Joy is in, is in that faith. It's in that belief. It's in that trust in Christ. You start to not have that trust and that belief and that faith, you're going to start not having the joy. The joy is a result of that. So let's believe. Let's trust. God has been faithful. He will be faithful. Let's have joy because here's the thing, and I talked about this a little bit earlier. Your joy is contagious. Your joy affects other people so that they want to know where it comes from. I mean, even happiness does that right? Joy all the more. I remember, you know, I, you, some of you know I'm a, a fan of the Washington Huskies football team. Um, they're, you know, whatever. I started that when I was young. But here's why I started it. I had this buddy. I wasn't into it at all. I wasn't even into college football. I, I mean, I played football, but it wasn't like I wasn't super into college football. I was actually into the NFL back then. Not really so much now. But at that time, I had this buddy, and he was so into the Washington Huskies. He could literally, you could ask him the score of a game from any time in like the last 10 or 15 years, and he could tell you the score of the game, okay? A little crazy, a little nuts, and I thought it was a little nuts, okay? He's a little bit of a husky freak, but I tell you what, that joy was contagious. I'm like, this looks like a lot of fun to be a super fan of this team. Now, I didn't become a fan like him. I couldn't tell you the scores of any games, probably, um, maybe a couple, but his happiness, his, his being so into it was contagious to me. Now, let me tell you something. That's nothing. That's nothing. You can have joy in your heart that spills out into your life that will draw people, that the Lord will use that to draw people to want to know who he is because the joy comes from him. And you'll have an opportunity to see people literally go from death to life. That's a lot better than making another fan, another husky football disciple, making another disciple of Jesus Christ. This is important. This is important. This is for you. And in, in it being for you, it's for all those who will come in contact with you, this joy. So I'm, gonna, I'm going a little over, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish it up here. For those of you who are not following Christ yet, this joy is for you. Just come to him. He's brought you here for a reason. You're sitting here because he wants to shake your world up. And let me tell you, it's a shaking that you will never recover from in a good way. It's a shaking that is going to define everything about the rest of your life and everything you do and every relationship you have. And there is so much joy in it. I'm not saying there's no pain. I just told you these guys were serving Christ. They got a beat down and put in prison. Maybe that's for you too. I don't know. Um, but the joy is there for you. The joy is there for you. I can tell you that. And normally that's, I don't know anybody who's had that particular experience. But you never know what's on its way. But I can tell you this, whatever comes, whatever life hands me, and I've had life hand me good and bad, all kinds of it. And I can tell you this, there is nothing that will take you through that like the joy that comes in giving your life, in surrendering your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so if you don't know him, that's for you. For those of you who do, for those of you who are Christ followers, please don't forget that we're commanded to have joy and let's remind each other. Now I'm not saying go to somebody when they're, it's okay to be sad. I'm not saying you can't be sad. Sadness is part of life. 
There's grief, there's sorrow, there's all those kinds of things. I'm not, don't go to a person who's, you know, just lost somebody and go up to them and be like, you're a Christian, you're supposed to have joy. That means you smile all the time. That's not what joy means. That's not what joy is. Joy is not I'm never sad or never mad or never any of those things. All those emotions can be good and appropriate in the right time. Joy is that thing that's behind all of that. Joy is that thing that's still there even when you're sad, even when you're mad, even whatever that says, I can't be moved. While I'm sad or while I'm upset or while this is bothering me or while whatever, I can tell you that I have a contentment in believing that ultimately Christ is going to make all things new. There's nothing that's broken, nothing that's broken that for the person who follows Christ and loves him will not be made new. And that's where the joy comes from. And I just, I'm just saying, we gotta, we gotta express it. We gotta express it. We gotta live that way. You live that way, and I promise you, people are gonna come to know the Lord. The Lord is gonna use you to draw people to himself. And there's not gonna be, I don't think there's gonna be a lot of greater joys in heaven than have gotten to be the person who the Lord used in any way to draw another person to him. That's, that's, that's beyond incredible. And all of you are already that person, every single person who, who serves and gives and loves and, and, and is dedicated to Acts Church, all of you are part of that in your own life and all the things you do, just little things you have no idea, but one of the most powerful is this joy. So if you don't know Christ, like the Philippian jailer, you can be saved. You can know him. Talk to me. Talk to somebody sitting next to you. Talk to one of our elders, our deacons. Talk to somebody in this church, and we'll tell you all about what it looks like to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can be saved. For those of you who are, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out, and we'll catch you again next week.